0: Stocks, bonds, currencies, gold, fixed income, interest rates, geopolitical affairs. These are the drivers of the markets. These are the drivers of your money, your wealth, your investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets. I'm your host, the Finance Ghost, founder of thefinanceghost.com. I'm joined by my good friend and co-host, Mohamed Nalla, founder of monose.com and one of the most respected macroeconomic analysts to come out of South Africa. He now lives in Canada, so we get his global perspective layered on top of emerging markets experience. This podcast is not about stock tips. It's not about financial and investment advice, so please don't construe it in that way. We are here to share our love of the markets, our passion for what's going on out there, and our insights in the hopes that it grows your knowledge and potentially helps you make better decisions with your money long-term. Welcome to Magic Markets. Welcome to the second episode of Magic Markets. I'm your host, The Finance Ghost, and with me as ever, Mohamed Nallah of uh, MoKnows.com. Hello, Mo.
1: Hi, Ghost. Good to be on our second podcast. This is really exciting stuff.
0: Yeah, it's been an exciting week for us. Uh, last week we learned how to publish a podcast, and this week we were training on South African iTunes. So, you know, we'll take it. <laughs> and hopefully uh, hopefully we can have another, another really good discussion today. Well, I think the listeners deserve to know a little bit more about you though. You know, I hide behind this kind of ghost cartoon and it's with good reason, but, but you don't. And that's part of your history as quite a snappy dresser. I, mean, I think you've got something you should really <laughs> share with our listeners. One of your accolades that has very little to do with the markets.
1: Ghost. I, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, you you get to hide under you know that ghostly sheet that you you throw over your head. Uh, I, I I'm at a loss. I have no idea what you're referring Nothing to.
0: Nothing to do with GQ best dressed <laughs> man or snappy suits in Sanson or anything anything like that at all. No memory there.
1: No memory whatsoever.
0: No, we've got proper I'm pleading. I'm pleading ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> it's proper memory loss, yeah. It's like a government investigation. <laughs> but let's get straight into it. I think the the topic for today is China and. China's always relevant. I mean, it's enormous, as you'll fill us in on on just now with your macroeconomics knowledge. And you've actually been to China, which is one up on me. I unfortunately have not. But China's been in the news recently for a number of reasons. And poor Jack Ma has really had quite a tough month in some ways and a great month in others. Alibaba had an absolutely amazing singles day, which is kind of their Black Friday equivalent, $74 billion in sales, more than double the previous record. I mean, the numbers are just staggering, 250,000 brands, 800 million customers. It's hard for us to actually fathom the sheer scale of what goes on in China and the consumer market around it. So that was some nice life breathed into the likes of Alibaba. But Jack Ma before that, it had a very horrible few weeks. And, And that's because the Chinese government literally at the 11th hour pulled the listing of Ant Group, which is essentially Alipay, the payments business that was spun out of Alibaba They've got 730 million monthly users. PayPal, for example, has only 346 million, so well less than half of what Ant Group has got. They processed $17 trillion in digital payments in the 12 months to June. Now, these statistics are often meaningless in isolation, but it gives some idea of the scale we're dealing with here. Now, Ant Group was making 95% of its revenue in China. And Jack Ma, after getting approval from the Chinese authorities for the listing, suddenly went on this tirade where he became very publicly critical of central bankers, regulation. He really annoyed the government. And unfortunately, in China, that's not something that you want to do. So Ant was on track to raise $34 billion. It would have made it the biggest IPO in history, bigger than Saudi Aramco. The offer was 872 times oversubscribed by retail investors. I mean, it's just staggering how people were trying to climb into this IPO. And then, out of nowhere, China pulled it. And that was that. (laughs) Hong Kong had approved it. China said no. Alibaba's share price dropped in sympathy 12% in one week. Uh, a couple of local shares took some pain as a result of a, of a souring of sentiment towards China, but we'll talk on that shortly. I mean, it's an interesting place, Mo, and I think it's a, it's a tough one for us to understand. But I think with your insights, hopefully, we'll we'll get a better understanding of China. What can you tell us?
1: So, Ghost, uh, first of all, I, I wouldn't write off, uh, you know, and going for a, a listing at some point in time in the future. Uh, you know, I think at this stage, the, the Chinese regulators have stepped in. Uh, and, you know, you could argue that perhaps, you know, Jack Ma has gone and upset the powers that be. Uh, and there's a reasonable basis to to make that assumption. But also bear in mind that it's, it's been several years now that Chinese authorities have been trying to grapple with regulation in its financial system. Uh, I mean, if you look at just the Chinese savings rate, like all of the statistics that you went into earlier, it's stagnant. It's at over 30%, and this is in the world's largest economy. So, with savings rates that high, with the fact that you know we've had problems in the past with regards to wealth management products, there, with regards to to shadow banking, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff in China in the financial system that needs to be regulated and that the regulators need to feel comfortable with. And so, potentially, there's some of those considerations that have definitely also come into have come into play. Now, what I did write about. In, in my my, my post uh, on the website monos.com uh, quite recently is I've started a series on China because it's just so topical. And one of the key points of my, my blog post uh, in the introductory blog post on China was that we can't look at China through the same lens that we look at a Western economy, for example. And it's not just an issue of scale. I mean, China, as you indicated, the numbers are just monumental, regardless of where you go. I mean, an interesting story from when I was in China is I was sitting with one of the directors of a leading internet search engine in China. And we're chatting and he says to me, How big is the South African market? So I start off by saying, well, you know, we've got about 55 million to 60 million people. And he stopped me right there and he says, that's like one city, mid-tier city in China. It's like hardly worth their time to look at it. So that just gives you an indication of the scale of some of the stuff that you're dealing with. But that's not the point I wanna get to. The point I wanna get to is we've gotta look at China through a lens that is appropriate to the cultural context of China. And I raised these two anecdotes that were certainly raised to me during my visit there, which is, I guess, the lens that regulators in China apply to when they consider regulation. And the first was uh, a, a metaphor, it's from Deng Xiaoping, about crossing the river by feeling stones. And what does this mean? It means that as you're crossing a river, you feel for the stones underfoot. And if you can't feel the next stone, you don't proceed unless you have a firm footing, lest the current sweep you away. Now, let's take that and bring it back into regulation. The Chinese will do what they need to do for as long as they have line of sight. And as soon as they feel as though something's getting away from them, or they don't have a good handle on it, or you know the data is not what they want the data to be, and <laughs> we can get into data consistency issues in China a little bit later on, they are not afraid to take a step or two back, and that's why often you see regulation that's promulgated in China then gets reversed and then maybe brought back, you know, at some point in time in the future. And then the second lens that I would like to introduce here is another thing also from Deng Xiaoping, which is the cat theory. And and where this theory goes is, is they basically say that it doesn't matter if the cat is black or white as long as it catches mice, it's a good cat. And what does this mean? We often get caught up in is China socialist? Is China capitalist? What are they doing? And it doesn't matter. And the reason why it doesn't matter is China's going to do whatever it needs to do, whether that fits into a socialist framework or a capitalist framework, as long as as it serves the long-term interests of where China wants to be in the next 10 years and in the next 20 years. And that's why I say, let's not get all tripped up about the fact that this IPO was pulled back at this stage. I'm almost certain that at some point in time in the future, a player as large as as Ant, is not going to be withheld from global capital markets. It's just that I think Chinese regulators want that to happen on terms that are congruent with their long-term strategic objectives.
0: Yeah, that certainly makes sense, Mo. And I think just to touch on the socialist versus capitalist points. I mean, if I understand correctly, I think China is on a little bit of an LSM journey the same way South Africa is. And what I mean by that is your your LSMs or living standard measures and and look, it's uh notoriously dicey way to segment the market full of its own problems and, and kind of depends on what you own. Actually, you essentially respond to a survey. And if you own certain basket of goods, then you're essentially placed into an LSM. But simplistically, it just tries to measure the standard of living for people. And in South Africa, we're on a journey to move people from the bottom LSM, which is LSM 1, which is extremely poor, you know, ideally through into these mid level LSMs, at which point they become quite a big consumer force. And then out the other side is LSM 8, 9 and 10, which are your sort of higher earners, and And buying a large basket of goods, luxury goods, durable goods, all that kind of stuff that kind of propels a, a country forward. It's a similar story in China, isn't it? There's still a lot of people in the lower LSMs coming through the ranks
1: undoubtedly and I mean again, if you look at China, the numbers are staggering. so ten years ago, there were roughly four hundred and fifty million people in China living below the absolute poverty line and from four, from in excess of four hundred and fifty million people. Today, or as at last year, that's the latest data we have, that number has dropped to just around five million people. That is amazing progress. That's like lifting one and a half United States out of poverty in one decade it's 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 they it's just absolutely staggering the kind of progress they've made now that's the absolute poverty line the challenge that lies ahead of them is to move those people into the middle class now this actually dovetails quite nicely with with some of the battles that China has put right at the forefront of its agenda and what are those battles i mean we've spoken about financial reform and regulatory reform but there is a massive focus on issues of just healthy living. So healthcare is a big sector of focus in China. Clean energy and a clean environment is a big focus of the regulators uh, in China. Now, I'll give you an example. Again, we were in Beijing, and when we were in Beijing at, at, at that time, uh, we had phenomenal weather, we had clear blue skies, and everyone was was quite surprised, because you see the pictures of the smog and so forth. And one of the locals said to us, uh, you know what, uh, Xi, President Xi is actually going to be hosting Angela Merkel at that time, and as a result, what they had done is they would informed all of the factories that were basically downwind from where Beijing was to cease production for a week or two in order to ensure that the air cleared up so that when international dignitaries found their way to Beijing, that they had clear blue skies and a clean environment. Now, that gives you the sense of how China can be very directing in economic activity in its own economy. But it also plays into the sensitivities that China is fully aware that in order to transition into the economy of tomorrow, in order to mature as an economy that is services-led, that is being responsible with regards to the environment, that there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And I think when you bring those dimensions into it, those sectors in China represent Tremendous opportunities because they're orientated around improving the standard of living of effectively one and a half billion people, of which maybe even a third of those have only recently escaped poverty and are migrating into the middle class.
0: Yeah, it's, it's amazing to see those communist influences when they can just shut factories down for a week. It's almost like you know lockdown minus the virus. Um, so it's <laughs> something that isn't so foreign to us anymore. I mean, it's interesting that you speak about clean energy and, and we'll talk about some of the platform businesses in China just now as well. But Tesla is super topical this week because they've finally been included in the S&P 500, or they will be. And the company will go in more or less the 10th biggest by market cap, which is quite extraordinary that it's taken this long to be admitted to the S&P 500. But that's a reflection on... Tesla's profitability. It's taken this long for four consecutive quarters of profitability. It was actually achieved last quarter, but the S&P committee was having none of it and decided to keep Tesla out of the index. They obviously wanted to see that Tesla could keep it up, which they did. So Tesla's worth around $500 billion. Now it's trading around $500 per share. So it's around that kind of all-time high mark. And China is a massive market for Tesla. Tesla's got 20% 20% market share of global EVs. It's around 30% in China, although data is slightly sketchy. And the Model 3 has been a huge driver for Tesla. You know that's around 15% of global market share. So Tesla is 20 as a whole. 15 is one model, um, and that was a big catalyst for a change in trajectory of the Tesla share price a couple of years ago. And electric vehicles. I mean, you and I are both petrol heads. We it's one thing we share in common that uh, our audience doesn't know, but EVs are also starting to maybe become a little bit cool, a little bit of a performance thing. You know, it's starting to get noticed. But I think at the end of the day, it's a bulk consumer product and it's very government incentivized overseas, which is why I think adoption will be slow in a lot of emerging markets. But China is going to push for this because they have a stated objective of achieving 20 to 25 percent EV participation by 2025. And what that means is that, you know, between a fifth and a quarter of new vehicles sold by 2025 will be electric. There are currently a million electric vehicles sold in China now. So I've done some basic maths and basically if Tesla just maintain market share in China, which will in and of itself be a huge achievement, you know, they could be selling one and a half million cars in, uh, you know, in a few years time, which would be a really, really impressive number. It would be three times what they're currently selling in in total, Tesla has a Gigafactory in China. It's interesting to see how China has opened itself up to the world you know, by allowing the likes of Tesla to come and actually build this incredible Gigafactory there. Although from 2023, I've read reports that Tesla will have to pay $320 million a year in tax to the Chinese government. So hopefully uh, all the Tesla bulls have factored that into their valuation. But Mo, what's your view on on Tesla as a whole and and in the context of China and, and China's pledge for carbon neutrality by 2060, which is also hot off the press?
1: Yeah, so, so let's let's break that down. I mean, firstly, on, on Tesla, it's, it's been phenomenal. It's been out of the S&P 500, and now on its inclusion, we'll jump into like a top 10 spot. Uh, it's made Elon Musk one of the wealthiest men in the world. I think his stake alone in Tesla is in excess of $80 billion. So these things have all moved very quickly. They only recently, and as you indicated, three or four quarters ago, moved into profitability. Now, it sounded like you're a you're a Tesla bull there, Ghost, but you know, I, I'm not so sure. I, Tesla I like the stock. I like the, the the sector it plays in. But remember, you can be buying great companies, but the secret to good investment is buying them at the right price. And quite frankly, the question mark to me is always, you know, is is Tesla trading at the right price? Now I certainly haven't been participating in this phenomenal rally that Tesla has had. I know there are many listeners out there that have, and well done to you. But at that point in time, earlier this year, and the stock's up in excess of 500% this year, so it's, it's, they even had a stock split, uh, and that's now seen the stock ratchet up even further. There's a lot of optimism priced into it. Uh, and the point I think that they're missing is that there will at some point in time be Competitive uh, pressures that come through into Tesla, we can get we can get into some of that detail a little bit further on. Is the market large? Absolutely. Is the world going towards clean energy uh, EVs? Absolutely. Will Tesla be the only show in town? No. And so as a result, I think, you know, maybe valuation has gotten a little bit ahead of itself if you if you do a, a breakdown. And again, how do you value a company like Tesla if you do it using a conventional method of, of discounted cash flows? Arguably, fair value on Tesla is closer to around $200 versus the 500 plus that it's trading at right now. Maybe that's the wrong lens. I, I don't know what your view is here. And we can unpack that a little bit later on. But I think it's, it's run on a lot of Elon Musk's own personal appeal and charm. They've also launched Tesla tequila for those of you that like that kind of thing and you can't get your hands on this stuff. Uh, There's a lot of hype um, in in my view. Uh, Right sector, great company, may be priced incorrectly. Let's break it back down into China. China has been at this EV game for a long time. Uh, They provided massive incentives to people in China to buy electric vehicles. In fact, when I was there, I visited a company called BYD, or Build Your Dreams, and I think a lot of listeners don't even know about BYD. Uh, And if you do, it's probably only because Warren Buffett owns a significant chunk of this company. In the 1990s, BYD was a battery manufacturer. That's all they did. And they supplied batteries to your, your large phone manufacturers like Nokia. Uh, and now, 30 years later, BYD is probably the only electric vehicle manufacturer that has a vehicle in every vehicle class. Now, what do I mean when I say that? They've got everything down from the the, the passenger vehicle market all the way up to commercial, up to utility vehicles. When, When we visited their factory, their headquarters are in Shenzhen in China, Every single municipal vehicle in Shenzhen, whether that's your garbage truck, whether that's the, the truck that sweeps or, or scrubs your streets, those are all electric and they're all supplied by BYD. Uh, even at the headquarters, they've got this massive monorail that runs around the headquarters, all entirely electrically run. Uh, we had the privilege of driving some of their cars, which I might say, you know, we we we, we tested some of their concept vehicles. Those vehicles are actually quite nice. They're fast. They are, I would say, comparable to a a Tesla. Uh, The design of these vehicles was quite attractive. And so this tells you that China's not sitting still. They've got capability in their economy. It's great that Tesla set up shop there because they see the potential. But again, plays into my comment earlier Tesla's not going to be the only show in town, and as companies come into the space, either from the EV side, as BYD has always kind of been in that space, versus other players like a Volkswagen, uh, like your other large automotive manufacturers, Toyota, they're all coming out with EVs over the course of the next several years, and that will transition how we exist, how we transport ourselves around uh, you know, our environments, but it does come with some sort of competitive pressure for Tesla.
0: Yeah, so Mo, no, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I'm a Tesla bull at all. I think they'll they'll grow well. Then I don't think their valuation at the moment is justified. I think people are treating it as a network effect kind of platform company. And we've got 100 years worth of history with the automobile. And I don't think people buy cars because their neighbor have exactly the same one. In fact, I think it's the other way around. People like to be different. And that's the exact opposite of a network effect. You know, everyone wants to be on Facebook. Everyone wants to be on Twitter because that's where all your friends are. Why does that apply to cars and why are people valuing Tesla as though they will have this ridiculous market share in this EV future? People are still going to buy BMWs and Mercedes Benzes and Volkswagens and Audis and that's not going to go away. And I think that these giants have just been watching Tesla make losses for years, let's face it. Only recently, it's actually started to become remotely economically interesting. Those big established companies, they can't afford to make big losses like that. So they're allowing Tesla to soak up all the sort of venture capital investments and the early stage people who understand it's gonna be loss making. And now that sort of German manufacturing war machine is gonna flick a switch and go into EVs. And now Tesla is gonna have to really sin for its supper because now the competition is going to come through and it's gonna come through in a big way.
1: I do have a question for you, Ghost, is that, Does this eventually transition into something that's more than just about cars, and what I mean when I say that, it's, it's great that it's about how your car looks, but it, at the end of the day, a car gets you from point A to point B, but the pleasure of that driving experience, if you think of a smartphone, for example, what has made something like an iPhone from Apple so successful is the pleasure of the user experience, the ease of use, uh, or lack of ease of use if you speak to some people who don't like the iPhone, and I think that's what it might boil down to when it comes to Tesla versus some of the German behemoths, as you mentioned, is what do they make the internal experience, the software experience of your car like over time? And that might be an additional dimension to consider.
0: And in many ways, what apps can they sell you? What sort of subscription services can they put in place? I mean, we are staring down the barrel of a world where your car just becomes a really big smartphone. Uh, It's not far away. I don't think it's far away at all, actually. And I suppose that's what people are starting to value in. You know, again, what is that network effect? What is the value of Tesla as a platform rather than as a, a car manufacturer? And there is also the renewables side of Tesla's business, which is potentially going to be very large. And I think they've got some really clever stuff there. You know, the solutions that certainly in South Africa would be rather lovely as we deal with uh, with load shedding, something that you've uh, you've left behind, Mo, in your in your previous life. But yeah, te- Tesla bulls must be looking at China and going, you know, that's a big opportunity the European market will will fight over European cars. There's going to be a lot of competition there, but Tesla's got a big head start in China. And I guess if Tesla just delivers on a Chinese strategy, then maybe this current valuation is justified. But the problem with trading on a revenue multiple of 15 is that if anything goes slightly wrong and that then unwinds, it will be extremely painful. And the other thing I'm seeing in the market is a lot of copycats. So I think there's going to be more and more questionable electric manufacturers that come to market. It was already a disaster with Nikola, which turned into a big fraud. <laughs> I saw news today of uh, another startup, that, uh, an, a UK startup that will be listing via a SPAC, which has become very popular in the US, which is basically a listed shell. And companies reverse into it and manage to list with more ease than they would otherwise I think we're gonna be seeing a lot of this stuff come to market, you know, who is the next Elon Musk is gonna become a theme that I think Robin Hood traders in the US are gonna be all over. So people just need to be careful of the hype and, and overpaying for stuff and just be true to, you know, what are the underlying trends and, and, and what do they mean? Uh, when you see the, the big manufacturers trading on revenue multiples of 0.5 and Tesla's at 15, you know, you've gotta be a little bit circumspect around, around what you're actually buying.
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, something that we're always very consistent with uh, between yourself uh, at Finance Ghost and myself at, at Mono's is that psychology in investing is very important. Uh, and if you're a short term trader and you can call Tesla... Well done and and, and good luck. But if you look at the the longer term trends, you've got to assess, does it make sense? Is it an industry that I like to be in? Does the company I'm buying into have a competitive edge or a moat around itself that protects its position in the market? And then lastly, when I break this down as a business, am I willing to to pay the price that the market's currently putting on this business, or should I wait for a better entry point? Uh, The other thing, and we probably don't have the time to go into all of this, but it's very important from a macro perspective is, People in other segments of the economy are going to have to think long and hard about this. And I'm not just talking about your your big oil producers, for example, which we we have spoken about, you've written about it as well. It's gonna come with massive pressure for them. But think of smaller businesses, for example, your auto shop down, down the road who repairs a car that is currently an internal combustion engine EVs don't have as many moving parts. And over time, as the world transitions to that, everything in that supply chain, whether it's the components manufacturers, whether it's the small auto shop, they are all going to start feeling some form of pressure. And that's probably something that listeners need to be aware of as well as they go about investing both on markets that are listed as well as in the unlisted space.
0: Yeah, I agree with that completely. Mo, you and I can talk all day about this stuff, but I think we are out of time I would definitely encourage our listeners to visit thefinanceghost.com and visit monose.com where we both write in far more detail about these topics that we are so passionate about and interested in and it's a really great place for listeners to go and actually find more details get to grips with the content and please give us feedback ideas for topics we are really keen to know you know what you're enjoying about the show what you want to hear about and what we can have a conversation about well, I think that's it. Thank you as ever, and uh, we'll do this again next week.
1: Thanks, and speak to you next week, same time, same place.
0: Remember to visit thefinanceghost.com and monos.com for more detailed insights from both of us on the topics that we are most passionate about. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing you have heard here should be taken as personal financial or investment advice. Speak to your financial advisor. Do your own research, make your own decisions, and good luck. This has been an episode of Magic Markets with your host, The Finance Ghost, and Mohamed Nalla.